This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Sun Ra's Chicago, Afrofuturism and the City by Professor William Seitz. Poet and jazz band musician Sun Ra, born in 1914, is one of the most wildly prolific and unfailingly eccentric figures in the history of music. Renowned for extravagant performances in which his band Orchestra appeared in neo-Egyptian garb, this keyboardist and band leader also espoused an interstellar cosmology and that the planet Saturn was his true home. In his book, Seitz contextualizes this visionary musician in his home on Earth, specifically in Chicago's South Side, where from 1946 to 1961, Sun Ra lived and relaunched his career. The post-war South Side was a hotbed of unorthodox religion and cultural activism. Afrocentric philosophies flourished, storefront prophets sold dream book Bibles, and Elijah Muhammad was building the Nation of Islam. It was also an unruly musical crossroads where the man then still known as Sonny Blunt drew from an array of intellectual and musical sources from radical nationalism, revisionist Christianity and science fiction to jazz, blues, Latin dance music and pop exotica. All this to construct a philosophy and performance style that imagined a new identity and future for African-Americans. Sunrise Chicago shows that the late 20th century Afrofuturism emerged from a deep utopian engagement with the city, and that by excavating the post-war Black experience of Sunrise Southside milieu, we can come to see the possibilities of urban life in new ways. Dr. William Seitz is Associate Professor in the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice at the University of Chicago. His fields of interest include urban and community studies, political economy, social movements, immigration, race, culture, social theory, and historical methods. He joins me today to talk about his new book. Welcome, William. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in your field. Sure. So I am an urban sociologist by training, and uh, I came to... uh, sociology, actually, through doing tenant organizing in, uh, in New York City when I was younger, uh, you know, organizing building associations in kind of tenement buildings in New York's Lower East Side. And, you know, the, the issues that I was dealing with there were sort of displacement issues, uh, how you build coalitions in order to uh, bring different community groups together to address issues of gentrification. And, uh, In the process, I became really interested in how issues, kind of broader issues uh, or broader changes really in politics and in the kind of political economy of the city tend to shape the capacities of poor and working class residents to create, uh, you know, their communities or to, excuse me, to influence their communities. 
So, you know, as a result of this uh, sort of experience, I ended up going back to, and those interests, I ended up going to uh, get a PhD in sociology at the City University of New York. Uh, my dissertation work focused on the kinds of questions in the Lower East Side that I had been working on. And then I went on to write a book uh, called Remaking New York uh, that focused on kind of New York City's larger transformation from the 1970s, the fiscal crisis period, up through, uh, I guess, what we could call the Giuliani years of the late 1990s. As, you know, all that, that period as seen through the city's politics and kind of neighborhood level community changes. But anyway, what I didn't do in this first book is look very carefully at issues of race and issues of culture. And that was something I very much wanted to take up in, uh, in subsequent work. Okay. So maybe next, tell us how you came to be interested in Sun Ra specifically and write this book. Well, I was always interested in, uh, or at least since I was a sort of teenager, I was interested in his music. I was a big fan. Uh, and, and the figure of Sun Ra, of course, was always interesting and compelling. Um, it, it, was really, it was really the Chicago connection that drew me in, uh, in terms of uh, attempting to do research uh, on him. Uh, Sun Ra lived in Chicago uh, between 1946 and 1961. And these were very formative years for him uh, as a musician and as a thinker. Um, but, you know, I, I was also drawn uh, because, um, you know, as an urban sociologist who thinks historically about things, I was really struck by how uh, conventional images of black urban history, and in particular of Chicago's Black South Side, uh, you know, tend to be very uh, oversimplified. They tend, on the one hand, to portray uh, the community as simply, uh, you know, victimized and, and fully defined by segregation and by the constraints and limits imposed upon it. Or conversely, on the other hand, um, the, the, the Black South Side tends to be romanticized, uh, sort of particularly in this period of the 1940s and 1950s, um, because it's seen sort of as a as a kind of golden age of intra-communal harmony, you know, a place where uh, middle-class black folk live near working class and poor black folk, um, and that there was a kind of an integral uh, community within the larger sort of white Chicago. And, you know, as I started to uh, dig into archival sources on South Side history, it seemed to me that, um, the South Side music scene, and really especially Sun Ra's story in relation to that, if, especially if we see Sun Ra's story as kind of a community story, it offers a, uh, a different window onto the South Side of this period. You know, uh, this was a place that was both, uh, you know, it was profoundly shaped and scarred by Northern Jim Crow, by segregation. Um, and it was also remarkably rich in cultural terms but this, you know, this culture, as we dig into it from Sun Ra's perspective and Sun Ra's experience there, um, ends up looking more complex, less well-known than uh, I think we conventionally think it is. You know, Sun Ra's 
movement through not just the music scene, but also through the kinds of uh, unorthodox religious and cultural circles of the 40s and 50s um, do give us, do, they, they give us a different picture of the South Side. So for our listeners who've not yet had the pleasure of encountering Sun Ra before, tell us about this larger than life figure, maybe starting uh, with how he's best known in the latter part of his career. Sure. Uh, you know, the Sun Ra, I think that most of us know, if we do, if we're familiar with him, um, is what I would call the kind of post-1960s Sun Ra. Um, some folks may have encountered him through the uh, through the movie uh, Space is the Place, which is a 1974 release directed by John Coney, uh, at least partly written by Sun Ra and uh, wildly entertaining if people haven't seen it. Uh, it features him as as himself uh, in a story of his his effort as an outer space traveler to uh, you know save black people on Earth and and to stop the planet from um, destroying itself. It's vastly entertaining, but also quite uh, you know I think a useful window into kind of the the later Sun Ra. Sun Ra's you know, his big band. Uh, he was first and foremost a, a musician, a pianist, and a band leader. And in the 1950s, he formed a, a band that was called the Orchestra, with an A. And he um, he led this band for um, the remainder of his time on Earth. He died in 1993. The band was originally formed in Chicago. Uh, it continued in various forms after... Uh, he and the group moved to New York in the 1960s. And then at the end of the 1960s, they relocated to Philadelphia, which was home base for the remainder of, of Sunrise time. You know, as he became better known, um, you know, he was, he was, he came to be seen as a kind of a, you know, a free jazz experimentalist pioneer. So he's a celebrated figure within the history of late 20th century jazz. Uh, but he also, uh, achieved sort of greater recognition as an eccentric performer. And so folks who weren't even necessarily thinking of themselves as jazz fans may have encountered Sun Ra and the orchestra or the post-Sun Ra orchestra, which still performs, um, in one of their shows. And for a while, at least, during sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, some of these shows became legendary for uh, you know, the enormous number of musicians Sun Ra might show up for the lots of dancers, for, uh, for fire eaters, for elaborate costumes, uh, for marching into the audience. In other words, the kinds of sort of spectacle um, that, you know, now I think is probably often incorporated into a range of different kinds of musical performances, but at the time um, was, um, was certainly very wild and experimental. Sun Ra and the orchestra coupled this performance style with what we would now call, uh, you know, an Afrofuturist message about outer space travel being uh, a kind of emancipatory vehicle for people, and, and in particular for Black people on Earth. You know, Sun Ra, more than that, this was more than a performance, he, he sort of cultivated uh, you know, his own persona, his own image as an otherworldly being. And, you know, listeners can eagerly Google, uh, easily Google, uh, you know, photos of, of, uh, of Sun Ra uh, in his various uh, kind of wardrobe choices and headgear and so forth. Um, 
as I think I mentioned, uh, you know, Sun Ra passed in 1993, but the orchestra itself continues to this day uh, under the direction of uh, Marshall Allen, who was uh, an original orchestra member from the 1950s. I believe Marshall is 97 years old now uh, and uh, quite active and quite dynamic as a as a saxophonist and 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 band leader. Gosh, that's incredible. I did not realize that. They so are, I believe I'm just going to say, add to that. that I believe they're going to be performing at Lincoln Center in New York sometime this spring. So they are very much still in the ascendance. <laughs> that's fantastic. Ah, so you explain in your introduction, there's been a lot of academic interest very recently into the life and philosophy of Sun Ra, uh, especially focusing on these otherworldly Afrofuturistic aspects of his later career. Um, but you say that your focus is a little different. So can you give us a sense of the existing scholarship and where you see yourself fitting into it? Sure. There really is, as you say, um, you know, a lot of discussion of Sun Ra today in a lot of different scholarly fields, um, you know, and, and it's very much, I think, uh, connected to um, the perception that he was a very important sort of Afrofuturist pioneer. And Afrofuturism as a kind of a, you know, as an aesthetic and as a philosophy, uh, in other words, as a set of ideas that effectively claim that um, by bringing together a reimagined past in which African-Americans are at the center of the cultural story by bringing that together with a vision of the future that is a Black-led future and one in which African-Americans can enjoy an emancipated life, we have, in fact, an appealing, kind of compelling, and, and quite culturally rich aesthetic that can manifest itself in music and film and visual art and in writing, uh, in science fiction, and so forth. And so um, there's really quite a flourishing of work in all these different areas and, you know, enormous amounts of commentary that are trying to kind of, by academics and others who are trying to kind of make sense of it and, and, uh, and, and, and get inside of it. Um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of this discussion is really interesting and important, um, but it, it, tends not to focus terribly much on sort of Sun Ra's own historical emergence. And, um, you know, I think as you and I were speaking earlier, I think this is in part, uh, you know, this is a, this is a figure who claimed to come from the future. And so uh, why would we look for him in the past? But I think by the same token, um, you know, I am a historically minded urbanist. And so what I found, you know, particularly striking is that Sun Ra's own emergence, uh, first in, in Birmingham, Alabama, um, where he was born and lived from uh, 1914 to 1946, and then subsequently in Chicago from 1946 to 61, um, by looking at his life in these cities, I think we can see how, how deeply they, they influenced him. And so I wanted to you know, re-anchor him in those cities to sort of follow him around there to explore uh, the urban worlds he came out of uh, or passed through. And, you know, I felt that we could learn new things about him by by doing that. By, you know, by the same token, though, I, I, I was hoping that by exploring this, 
you know, I, I, by exploring Sunra's sensibility, his, his kind of musical development, his, his philosophy or, or cosmology, um, I could see sort of how his kind of deep engagement with those cities led him to um, kind of reimagine them. Uh, in various ways. And those reimaginings, you know, themselves, I think, are also are, are quite interesting. And they give us a sense of kind of where what I would call his utopianism might have come from. And in the process, you know, reveal, I think, utopian currents, cultural currents in Birmingham of the early 20th century, in Chicago of the post-World War II period. And neither of these cities, I think, uh, are typically associated with utopianism uh, and with kind of reimagined futures in the sense that that Sun Ra embraced that 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 project. So the goal really for me was to kind of take, I suppose, someone who's often considered a, a kind of unorthodox figure, and by reembedding him in in his cities, uh, hoping, I suppose, to reveal aspects of of black cultural life in those cities that, that have, I think, received too little attention. So you start by looking at the context of Sonny Blount, as he was known then, uh, at the context of his childhood from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, specifically to the broader context of the Jim Crow South and how his cultural milieu likely shaped his experience. So what have you found here? Yeah, Sun Ra, he migrated from Birmingham to Chicago in 1946. And... Um, you know, that was the what we now consider kind of the peak year of the second great migration. You know, he was one of, I think, about 20,000 African-Americans who migrated to Chicago just in that year. And so he was part of a much larger wave of out-migration from the South. Um, but what I, what I found quite interesting about Sun Ra was that he sort of, his trajectory kind of defies the the conventional stereotype of that migration as one from the rural South to the uh, urban North. Sun Ra, being from Birmingham, uh, came from the urban South. And so his is a kind of urban to urban migration. And so I found that by, you know, I, I was interested in how by going back and trying to trace his life in Birmingham, we would learn sort of new things about Birmingham, but we would also kind of get a sense of of what Sun Ra might have brought with him um, in a cultural sense uh, when he migrated to Chicago in 1946. You know, Birmingham itself is really a, a fascinating city during this period, during these sort of first handful of decades of the 20th century. Um, you know, I think the, the image that particularly I think for Northerners that comes to mind about Birmingham or the history of Birmingham is sort of 1960s civil rights era uh, kind of footage, right, of uh, infamous Bull Connor uh, directing his, uh, his police to shoot fire hoses at, at nonviolent African-American protesters. Um, and that, you know, those images, um, which really speak to the sort of extremity of, uh, of Southern Jim Crow violence, um, are very much, um, you know, a, an important window into kind of 20th century Birmingham. Sometimes, though, I think, you know, that image of Birmingham overshadows um, what was, in fact, uh, the extraordinary richness of, of Black Birmingham culture. 
uh, in the early decades of the 20th century. And that's the world that that Sonny Blunt, Blount, we're not really totally sure how he might have pronounced his last name. Um, that's the world, the urban world that he was born into in 1914, and that's that's where he grew up. And um, in the early chapters of the book, I try to explore uh, his early life in uh, in downtown Birmingham. Uh, he, he his grandmother's house was situated right downtown in the center of the commercial district of Birmingham, quite close to the train station. Um, Birmingham at this time was. Uh, in spite of being a very new city, uh, dating really only back to the 1880s, um, it was an extraordinarily dynamic and modern and bustling industrial city. Uh, it was probably the fastest growing city in the South. Uh, it had the largest black population uh, in the South. Uh, and what made that, that city so economically dynamic, of course, was... Uh, it owed in large measure to the extraordinary uh, backbreaking labor of, of black workers who worked in the mines, who worked in the iron foundries, uh, who worked as domestic workers, uh, who were convict laborers, uh, and who, who, who labored under extraordinarily difficult, brutal conditions. Um, and in addition to that, of course, faced uh, extraordinarily restrictive uh, forms of, of, uh, of Jim, Jim Crow law in all aspects, all other aspects of their lives. So, uh, you know, black people uh, ate in different restaurants and they were not allowed to go into many parks and they uh, were buried in different cemeteries and every aspect of, of, um, of, of social life in early 20th century Birmingham was bound by codes that were written into the law about, quote unquote, the separation of the races. And what I try to convey is not only how oppressive that was and how brutal and violent it was, but also how paradoxically the imposition of that level of segregation uh, created certain kinds of spaces within Birmingham, which permitted the development of a certain kind of autonomous black culture. And so that exploration of, of kind of black urbanity uh, in the downtown spaces of, um, of Birmingham, uh, I think I didn't mention, not only were sort of everything else that I mentioned segregated, there was a white downtown where white people could shop. And then there was a black downtown where African-American residents of Birmingham were allowed to shop. And so even kind of at that level, um, there was a kind of two worlds to Birmingham. And that second world, uh, the black world, um, in spite of and partly because of the extraordinary restrictions of life there, um, developed uh, quite remarkable self-directed kind of cultural institutions that were not only um, sort of uh, you know, spaces of survival, but were spaces as well of cultural creativity and, um, and, and reimagining. So for example, uh, the fraternal orders of Black Birmingham were remarkably uh, vital and sort of uh, imaginative in rethinking sort of the history of Black humanity, of Black America, of developing new rituals and kind of lore around the historical origins of, of Black Americans in Africa 
and in other places and in early America. And there are also musical societies of various kinds that emerge. And that is the world that Sunrise is sort of raised in and develops his kind of musical chops and his musical sensibility. He began playing piano at age 10 and was very, very quickly an advanced uh, player uh, without much musical instruction. And um, he ends up um, going to uh, high school at the All Black High School, uh, Industrial High School, the largest um, black high school in the country at that time. And um, Industrial High School as well is a good example of a sort of black-led institution flourishing in some ways kind of in the, in the, between the walls of, uh, of segregation. And at Industrial High School, he um, becomes not only a very proficient um, pianist and learns the kind of uh, industrial art, if you will, of, of uh, piano playing, but also um, learns a kind of rudimentary uh, kind of 1920s era jazz and um, under the sort of watchful eye of uh, the legendary music band director there, a man named Fess Watley, uh, becomes ushered into the kind of commercial music world of uh, 1930s Birmingham. And that sort of entree, so that by the time he's already, you know, he's a late teen, sort of 18, 19, 20 year old, he's already uh, performing out in the world and is, ends up becoming even a band leader of his own band uh, quite early on. And so this sort of experience um, in many ways imparts to the young Sonny Blunt uh, an appreciation for the extraordinary cultural leadership um, of, um, of black community leaders uh, in Birmingham. It, of course, imbues in him a, a deep and uh, sort of ineradicable um, resentment of Jim Crow, but it also leads him to start to think about ways in which he can chart his own path. Because even though he appreciates the extraordinary kind of black musical culture of Birmingham, um, he also sort of begins to develop a different view of what, um, what might be the road to emancipation. And that is in part the product of his own kind of early professional musical experiences uh, in 1930s Birmingham and in the, in the Southeast, one of which is a kind of you know, a chapter that I focus on that, that, that takes us through his time leading a territory band. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it is kind of amazing that he was, he was a leader of a band as early as high school. Um, he was out uh, traveling around the scene, playing with them. So I wanted to ask you, what was the music scene like during those years? It was extraordinarily rich. Uh, it was, it ran the gamut really from jazz, blues, ragtime, uh, vaudeville, uh, which was extremely uh, popular and thriving. Um, so, you know, I mean, he saw as a young as a boy or as a young man, many of the famous early blues singers like Bessie Smith. Uh, he saw many of the early kind of jazz bands of the 1920s, excuse me. But he also um, encountered kind of in the street 
uh, all sorts of kind of non-professional forms of music, uh, uh, church revival music, uh, other forms of uh, sort of Appalachian musics like yodeling, uh, other kinds of sacred music through uh, going to church with his grandmother. And so all of these become kind of musical resources that he will, over the course of his career, particularly later, um, carry with him and that will influence what ends up being a very kind of, you know, polyglot sort of musical sensibility that we see once he once he arrives in Chicago. In terms of his own uh, band's music, um, as best we can tell, it's very much patterned after Fletcher Henderson's uh, 1920s era jazz bands. And so um, the Sonny Blunt Orchestra, as it was called, uh, ends up uh, as I said, becoming a territory band, which were essentially these were bands that traveled throughout the sort of Southeast region and went from town to town uh, and generally performed for mostly black audiences in all sorts of uh, kind of spaces, uh, everything from, you know, church halls to kind of tobacco barns. And um, in the process, um, you know, in effect, discover uh, a kind of larger regional black community, which um, is knit together by a lot of these uh, musical groups, these territory bands. Um, Sonny Blunt Orchestra was very popular, apparently in Atlanta, and gave a series of concerts in the 19, I think 1934, 1935, that were particularly beloved by uh, black fraternities and black sorority groups in, uh, in Atlanta of the period. And this kind of musical experience, um, you know, made him a very kind of sophisticated, uh, if you will, sort of jazz man or jazz uh, musician and leader uh, of his period. By the same token, he um, he really didn't like the traveling life, and he didn't, he he had he felt deeply ambivalent about about the leadership aspect of running a band. Uh, by most accounts, he was a somewhat shy uh, child, and he also felt that um, he felt different from everyone else, and he felt um, not necessarily respected by everyone else, and that made it difficult for him to be a leader, and it made him want to sort of uh, sort of remove himself or kind of um, uh, disavow any pretensions to leadership, and so even at this early age. Uh, by the mid-30s, he decided that um, he'd had enough of this kind of commercial music business, and uh, he gave up his band. He went back to Birmingham. He went off to college uh, for a year and um, had decided he was just going to become a teacher and live a quiet life. And it was really at that point that um, he experienced what he later described as a kind of um, epochal dream in which uh, he experienced being, uh, I suppose the word we'd use now would be teleported to another planet, to the planet Saturn, and meeting uh, people of that world and being given, if you will, a charge by those people of that world to return to Earth. And then at a certain point, uh, when, it, when the time was right, he would become a leader and he would lead uh, the planet of Earth away from uh, it's, uh, it's, I suppose, uh, you know, it's errant ways. And so 
Um, this was apparently, uh, this is a dream he wrote down at the time. It's a dream that he continued to kind of recount later on in life. And um, what's clear is that he experienced it as a kind of, uh, you know, as a kind of epiphany, a kind of revelation, uh, a sort of a religious experience, if you will. And so um, I think we can, you know, we can chart some of um, Sun Ra's notion of um, himself as somebody who was sort of entrusted with a special mission or a special uh, role uh, from that moment. And um, it's not clear, you know, already by the, I mean, it's not yet clear at this time where that's going to lead him. He goes back to Birmingham. But one thing he does while he's back in Birmingham is he creates a kind of uh, musical and philosophical salon in the living room of his grandmother's house. So he no longer participates as much. He participates a little bit in giving commercial gigs, but for the most part, um, he sort of holds court in his grandmother's house and local musicians come by and they play together and they listen to him lecture and his lectures are sort of um, strange uh, about life in other worlds and life on other planets. Uh, but by the same token, he's also um, educating these musicians in the newest music. Uh, he's pulling broadcasts in from New York and he's um, schooling his musicians on the latest jazz styles. And um, he continues to live in Birmingham uh, all the way through, um, the, um, through the World War II period. Um, but what happens then is that he receives a draft notice and he refuses to uh, respond to it. And he declares himself a conscientious objector. He doesn't want to fight in the war. And, um, and we can imagine what a courageous thing and what a risky thing that must have been for an African-American man in 1940s Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, but in any event, he's jailed. Um, and then he is uh, granted his CO status eventually and is sent off to a work camp in Pennsylvania where he spends part of the war, comes back to Birmingham and is not particularly well received by the community there as someone who is, who is a CO. And so uh, we don't know exactly why he left Birmingham when he did, but in 1946, uh, he gets on the train and uh, he goes to Chicago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Yeah. He moves to Chicago's South Side in 1946, like you say. Um, and so like many musicians in the early phases of their careers there, he had to take on a lot of different jobs, wear a lot of hats, a lot of different circumstances. Um, and you argue that for all the inst instability that that... Um, puts on him. It also exposes him to a variety of musical styles and helped him develop a large network in the South Side scene. So can you tell us about that? Sure. It was a really extraordinary time when he arrived in Chicago in 1946. Uh, the war just ended. Uh, it had been, uh, economically speaking, a, a good period for many um, African-Americans in the North in the sense that um, jobs opened up that had previously been unavailable. And so... Uh, 
a lot of black families had uh, more disposable income uh, that, than they had previously had. And there was a very thriving kind of entertainment, nightlife, music scene, particularly in the South Side. Now, Chicago, uh, in ways that were surprisingly like Birmingham, uh, was a deeply racially segregated city in 1946. And so uh, if you look on a map, you would see uh, you know, a little stretch of the South Side that was conventionally at that time labeled the Black Belt. And it was an area in which African-American migrants were permitted to settle and relocate. But beyond that, um, Black Chicagoans attempting to move out of the Black Belt into other areas were met with violence. They were met with uh, racially restricted covenants and they were uh, denied, essentially, uh, entry into, uh, into other communities. And the same thing, or something like it, was true of the music scene as well. It was a racially segregated music scene in which uh, many of the best uh, opportunities uh, in terms of the best clubs, the, the best paying clubs, uh, in terms of uh, other musical opportunities, whether it was in the classical music world or whether it was in the uh, recording studios downtown, were largely off limits to African-American musicians in 1946. Conversely, uh, the South Side, the Black South Side music scene, uh, was extraordinarily vibrant. And there were many, many clubs playing at which one would hear all sorts of different kinds of music, uh, swing, various other kinds of jazz, early bebop, uh, standards or, you know, sort of tin pan, tin pan alley pop songs, uh, other forms of uh, uh, what we might now call sort of, you know, rhythm and blues, uh, or early rock and roll. And in that scene, um, Sonny Blunt moved swimmingly. Uh, he very quickly uh, got himself hired uh, as a music arranger and part-time pianist by, uh, coincidentally or not, uh, the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, the orchestra that he himself had sort of idolized as a young man. Uh, and he was able to... Uh, you know, meet Fletcher and work with Fletcher and became an important part of that orchestra, excuse me, of that uh, orchestra uh, during its residency at, um, at, a, uh, at, at a local uh, club. And uh, this club was called the Delisa and it was a, a kind of a show place, uh, lots of show music uh, for dancers. Uh, they uh, it, it had sort of programming in the sense of, you know, pageants and lots of uh, uh, kind of theatrical sort of musical productions. Uh, and um, there was Sonny Blunt in the middle of it. And um, it was, uh, you know, a very sort of successful and kind of exciting moment for him. And it kind of put him right at the center of, uh, of Southside musical culture. What I try to trace in the book, though, is that Beyond um, Sonny Blunt's time at the Delisa, uh, he also uh, sort of explored all sorts of other uh, outposts of the, uh, of the music scene of late 1940s uh, Southside Chicago. Uh, some of these were um, what was called the Pershing Hotel District, uh, which had a whole range of clubs of its own and that you know, involved all sorts of um, rather more polished forms of uh, musical presentation. 
There was the DuSable Hotel scene where he kind of uh, was connected to uh, the rougher, kind of more R&B sort of emerging uh, musics that were being uh, that were being played there in the nightlife scene. Uh, that were connected to you know, Leonard Chess's uh, sort of club. And Leonard Chess was a, a music producer who ended up uh, becoming an important producer of blues in, in the post-war period in Chicago. And so I, I try to follow um, Sonny Blunt through these different uh, sort of components of the South Side scene, partly to sort of open our, our eyes to how diverse and how rich this scene was. Uh, but also to give a sense of kind of how he drew musical resources from these various stylistic traditions that were still very much vibrant in uh, the South Side. I also spent some time looking at um, his experience uh, playing at the Calumet City strip clubs. Uh, Calumet City was a suburban uh, kind of uh, sin city of the late 1940s and 50s with uh, dozens of strip clubs and a very kind of harsh, brutal Jim Crow kind of uh, sort of set of social institutions. Um, But lots of black musicians from the South Side uh, went out there to make money and worked there under very difficult conditions, but in a way that was also kind of musically and and even uh, socially, I think, very formative to uh, to many of those musicians, including Sonny Blunt. So this becomes, you know, to my mind, this is the sort of, um, these are his early years in Chicago. And um, they both sort of strengthen his um, kind of musical formation that he received first in Birmingham, in the sense that that sort of diversity of musical forms and richness of musical resources becomes even compounded when he comes to Chicago. But at the same time, um, the, the sort of white supremacist constraints of Birmingham are shockingly evident in a somewhat different form in 1940s and 1950s Chicago. And so, um, the, if you will, the sense that um, life needs to be different and how might life be different and what might Sonny Blunt do to... Um, to bring that about is, I think, an increasingly pressing question for him as uh, as the 1940s come to a close. Yeah, this was the part of um, Sonny Blunt's life in Chicago that I knew the least about when I first started this project. And I think that most people know the least about. And I I ended up feeling like it, it's, it's, it's really, in some ways, the most important moment for him in Chicago. Because it's a moment when his thinking about the nature of the world and about the nature of his own sort of cultural project begin to come together. As you mentioned, uh, it's sort of initiated when uh, when Sonny meets a uh, a young uh, radiology technician whose name was Alton Abraham, and they discover that they have um, interests in common around what we might call kind of alternative histories of uh, early civilization, uh, of ways to reread the Bible, and of how to find within those rereadings a sort of different origin story for African Americans. And so they 
uh, along with a couple of Alton's friends, they form uh, this secret society, which I think is called Thamai Research, although because it's a secret society, I don't think uh, anyone's really heard it heard that, 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 that title pronounced. Uh, but what we see in the sort of, uh, you know, to my, what to my research was essentially was a kind of a, a secret society slash study group. And uh, these men were in, engaging in their own kind of Bible study where they were in effect re- learning to reread the Bible in its conventional form as a kind of subversive text, as a text which, uh, which hid, which hid uh, its true meaning and its true import behind a kind of a screen of, um, of misinterpretation and mispresentation. And they, they are equipped to do this through sort of drawing on a whole host of a, sort of a really a long tradition of biblical commentary, uh, both white and black, that extends way back, several centuries back, uh, and that in many different ways kind of poke and probe the sort of core stories of the Bible as, uh, as, as I said, kind of uh, masked stories that if uh, revealed properly, uh, tell a very different story about uh, where human civilization comes from and the different parts that, um, that various actors have played in that civilization. You know, the reason what we know about Tamai research comes from a set of writings which are um, conventionally called the kind of polemical broadsheets. And what these are essentially are about 50 uh, typed pages that, in their different ways, um, sort of reread selections of the Bible and that combine those rereadings with new theories of racial identity, particularly for black Americans. Um, you know, the, the, the import of so many of these texts is that black Americans have no idea who they are. And it's the goal of the sort of Tamai researchers to reread the Bible and other kinds of texts in order to um, fully reveal that which has been, uh, has been masked and hidden. And, and really, you know, there, there are, I mean, there are a number of kind of different intellectual traditions that come together in these broadsheets. Um, some of these are, you know, what we might call racial revisionism, uh, a sort of reversal, if you will, of the conventional story of the emergence of early civilization as a kind of white civilization, a reversal of that by focusing on um, the key role of Africa, of Ethiopia, of Egypt, all of those places imagined as spaces of early black civilization, and then an account of how um, that early sort of black cradle of civilization uh, was subverted or covered over uh, or stolen. There's also um, a number of other kind of religious traditions that um, are drawn on or, or sort of one might even say rift on in the in these broadsheets, um, you know, some of these are um, African, sort of what we might call heterodox African American faiths that predate the 1940s and 50s. Some of them are relatively new. Uh, here, I'm speaking about things like uh, like uh, organizations like the Moorish Science Temple of America or um, 
the black Israelites, uh, the people may be most familiar with Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam, uh, the so-called black Muslims, um, all of which were developing their own theologies, if you will. And what was central to so many of their theologies was a different origin story about where black Americans come from. And so this is a burning question, right? Not just for Sonny Blunt and Alton Abraham, but for, for many black Southsiders. And um, what I found so interesting uh, about this period and this moment um, is that um, a local park, Washington Park, becomes a kind of meeting ground for all of these different um, quests and all of these different um, sort of theological projects. Uh, and so what, what I do is attempt to kind of read through the broadsheets um, uh, and, and try through doing that reconstruct a kind of religious culture on the Black South Side of this period that I, I think has been very little um, written about, but was clearly quite important to um, sort of what we might call the kind of popular culture, the sort of street level culture um, of the moment. One of the things that's also very strongly figured in the in these broadsheets, um, as, as well as it's very influential in some of the other faiths that I've just mentioned, is a kind of um, a kind of political ideology, a cultural nationalist political ideology that that is very much influenced by the figure of Marcus Garvey. Garvey was a, a important African American leader of the early 1920s. Uh, he founded an organization called the uh, United Negroes Improvement Association. And, and essentially what, you know, part of Garvey's project was the sort of unification of all African descended peoples and, um, and a dedication towards um, building um, their own internal self-sustaining institutions. Uh, Garvey was an, was an early Pan-Africanist um, and had a, what we, I think we would consider from today, a kind of early anti-colonial uh, or anti-colonialist um, orientation. And so some of the politics of the, of the broadsheets, the kind of cultural politics um, that we see floating through the biblical commentary um, is very much a kind of a, a Garveyite sort of sensibility. You know, this is a, these, these, are, these are ideas that um, other folks have written about as well. And it's, they're not just happening in Chicago. Um, they're really happening throughout, you know, in cities really, throughout the African diaspora of this period. Um, for example, uh, in Jamaica with, with Rastaf early Rastafarianism. And so I think this is a really kind of interesting moment and it's an interesting kind of um, coming together of Sun Ra, uh, Sun Ra's questions and his own sort of um, kind of philosophical uh, project, which is still kind of undefined and, and, and in search of uh, vehicle and in, in, in search of focus and sort of these other kind of religious and cultural currents that are, that are very active in the, uh, in the Black South Side in the early 1950s. You know, I, I won't go deeply into the specific rereadings of the kind of biblical passages, but I, I will simply say, um, you know, what, what, what emerges from their interpretation, at least, is that um, through these readings, one can, if you will, rehabilitate uh, the image and the figure of the African-American as a kind of subject who makes history, not simply a victim, not simply someone who is a, um, a, a kind of uh, uh, a, 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 a passive figure, 
uh, and often described as a kind of fallen figure uh, in a lot of the kind of uh, racist forms of uh, racial ascription that come out of uh, these interpretations, these conventional interpretations of the Bible. What we also, though, find in the broadsheets is um, a lot of discussion of music that ends up uh, sort of, if you will, re-racializing uh, so much, so many different forms of musical expression. So there's references to, you know, Tin Pan Alley pop tunes and drinking songs and religious hymns. And according to the, to the broadsheet authors, these are all about race. And they all, in fact, point to this narrative, this kind of reconstructed narrative around uh, black subjugation and then in turn black liberation through, through reinterpreting um, civilization and religious history. So what's important, I think, for Sun Ra about these broadsheets is that what we, or at least what I argue, takes place over the coming decade is Sun Ra and working with Alden Abraham attempt to take their sort of emerging kind of theologically inflected philosophy of race in America and to take it out of Washington Park, to take it out of the religious circles of the South Side into the music world. And so when we see, for example, um, Sun Ra begin to put together the band that eventually he would name uh, the orchestra in 1954, 1955, early 1956, um, we also see Alton Abraham starting to put together with Sun Ra a kind of a uh, a small cultural institution, uh, which they would call El Saturn, which had more than simply a band. It had a set of larger kind of set of cultural projects that were about um, enlightening listeners, enlightening audiences, not only to the newest music, not only to adventurous music, but also to a different way of, of viewing the world. Right. And you argue that Abraham's role in this vital period, um, as well as the cultural influences specifically of Chicago's South Side, have been overlooked in this vital stage of the development of Sun Ra's music and philosophy. So what do you see happening here? Well, I think, you know, aside from the broadsheets and kind of with the broadsheets, the other thing that I thought was so fascinating about um, this period in Sun Ra's life is, is the figure of Abraham. Uh, Alton Abraham, um, very interestingly, like Sun Ra, came originally from the urban South. Uh, he was born and raised in Texarkana, Texas, which was like Birmingham. It was a new South city. In other words, it was a modern industrial city that was brutally and originally segregated. And it also had a very thriving music scene. And it also had small, but, uh, what we might think of as somewhat culturally autonomous uh, institutions, Black-led institutions. And Alton Abraham, along with his family, uh, also migrated to Chicago in the 1940s. Abraham ended up going to uh, DuSable High School on the south side of Chicago, which was a, a sort of all-Black high school where he, uh, he was a musical person. He was not a sort of extraordinarily a gifted performer the way Sun Ra was, but he also came to see music as a vehicle for uh, advancing uh, these new ideas that, um, that he and Sun Ra were, uh, were, and to my research, were sort of exploring together. Uh, 
the the advantage of uh, that Alton Abraham had is that while Ra um, was a kind of esoteric and unpredictable figure, um, Abraham was very business oriented, and so it fell to Alton Abraham to kind of uh, organize uh, the the business of El Saturn, uh, the production of music. So Alton trained himself to be a recording engineer and he handled all aspects of the release of records and everything from, you know, the production of the album covers to uh, the sound and the, uh, the records themselves. Uh, and Alton also um, worked very hard to, um, to get uh, Sun Ra and his orchestra group um, gigs in the South Side. And that was not an easy thing because already by the 1950, mid-1950s, 55, 56, um, that extraordinarily vibrant and comparatively economically successful music scene in the South Side in the 1940s is fading. Uh, there's been a real dramatic kind of uh, sort of disinvestment process on the South Side, suburbanization, all sorts of sort of economic trends are making it more and more difficult to sustain a commercial music scene um, in the South Side, even as a lot of the effects of racial segregation are keeping black musicians from participating in the more lucrative opportunities that are happening elsewhere in the city. And so trying to find gigs is tough, but Alton is incredibly persistent and he has Ra and the orchestra play not only in clubs, but also in uh, for, uh, you know, debutante balls and uh, society dances and community groups and uh, outdoor concerts and all sorts of different places, uh, even played in a, a psychiatric hospital. Um, they will play anywhere. And part of that is just to sort of keep the band busy. But part of that also is to sort of make good on their mission, if you will, which is to kind of bring the music and their message to the people, to the community members. And so, you know, what evolves from the orchestra and from El Saturn is not just kind of a music business, but also, you know, what we might call a kind of a hybrid community organization, which was sort of part business, but also uh, part uh, community outreach group, part, um, if you will, cultural laboratory. And so, um, you know, this is really what um, what Ron and Abraham uh, work on during the sort of second half of the 1950s, um, during their final years in Chicago. So your next chapter looks at Ra and Abraham's final years in Chicago from 1957 to 1961 which was a period when their popular music aligned with broader cultural interest in the so-called conquest of space. And you suggest that even as Ra and the orchestra took on a more and more overt science and science fiction inspired theatricality, this was still rooted in the Chicagoan urban milieu. So this is a really interesting connection. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. You know, these, these, um, these folks, um, Sun Ra, Alton Abraham, and the other members of the orchestra, uh, initially saw themselves as what you know Ra called a, a rehearsal band, uh, a band that you know really got together to play uh, because of their commitment to Sun Ra's music and because of their commitment to the kind of larger 
spiritual project, if you will, uh, that Ra was trying to develop. Um, you know, in, in the process of, of doing this, um, I think there's a couple things that I try to emphasize about the music itself uh, as it evolves over this period. One, one piece of that is the way in which um, the city itself is reflected in Sun Ra's music of this period, particularly the sort of 1956-57, the early part of, this, of these final years in, in Chicago. Uh, we see this not only in terms of kind of the, the mimicry of urban sounds that we hear in some of the performances, but we also hear um, a kind of a, and we see this in the liner notes that Ra writes to accompany some of his recorded music. We see how um, Ra's experience in Chicago itself um, stimulates a sort of what we might call kind of a, a utopian reading of the city. In other words, Ra both appreciates what's dynamic and modern and exciting about urban life in Chicago, while also, in effect, seeing the Chicago that's the surface Chicago, the visible Chicago, as a kind of a false city, a city which covers up the city that could be, or the city, the utopian city that, um, that lies out there in the future. And so... Um, what we see in some of Ra's compositions is an effort to kind of push that notion forward in terms of his composition style, in terms of the different musical traditions that he draws on and what they mean to him, and um, that in effect become a way of reimagining the city. And so it's in this sense that I try to explore how, how Ra's utopianism is a kind of urban utopianism. It's both sort of stimulated by his, his, his life in the city, but also tries to kind of reimagine the city as a space um, where, where life can be radically different, where, as he says in his liner notes to one composition, uh, you know, all of art, all of science, and all of entertainment can come together in a world in which uh, the clubs are all open 24-7. And so this kind of a, a, a sort of aspiration for his music um, is really kind of fascinating to chart over these uh, over these years, these early years of the orchestra. But what also happens, and this is kind of the second, I think, point I try to make in this part of the book, is that um, the connection to Africa, which, as I said earlier, kind of emerges first in the polemical broadsheets and some of the research and the kind of biblical rereadings that Abraham and Ra were doing in the early 50s. This focus on Africa um, is increasingly explored in the music as well. And this happens at the same time as over the course of the late 1950s, uh, all of America and even much of the world is consumed by this new passion called the space race. Right. This is in the wake of the Sputnik launching and the sort of uh, the U.S. effort to kind of develop its own space program that can uh, sort of lead to a kind of, a, if you will, an American conquest of space. And what we see in so much of Ra's music of the late 50s is what I call kind of explorations of African space, meaning ways to figure both Africa and space travel in musical form. And so we see all sorts of space themes. We see 
kind of chants about an outer space future. We see it in song titles. Uh, we see it as well in the orchestra's performance attire, which increasingly involves wearing these costumes that sort of are, you know, what we might call kind of thrift shop versions of spacesuits uh, that gesture towards space and that kind of embody a different kind of outer space uh, uniform. Uh, and we also see, um, you know, we see it in the kind of formal elements of the music that are pushing forward into new kinds of sounds. So in other words, this is a moment where we see bebop kind of moving into, and bop moving into kind of a free jazz-ish sort of uh, moment. And we see that very much reflected in a lot of the outer space compositions um, that Ra is writing at the time and that the, that the orchestra are performing and recording. Um, we also see, though, um, in these sort of African pieces, I mean, excuse me, in these outer space pieces, we see sort of Africa figured at the same time. So, you know, I explore a little bit um, this vocal composition that Ra writes called On Africa, and sort of make a big deal of the preposition there, that it's on Africa. It's not in Africa, it's on Africa. And it, you know, at, at first glance, one might take this sort of song as just kind of a conventional celebration of, of a certain idealized Africa. But when we take it as as on Africa, we begin to recognize that what Ra's doing is really reimagining Africa as a planet, right? As a kind of outer space planet where there's a, you know, a kind of a fusion of uh, Africanist idealization and, and sort of outer space utopia. And so, you know, this is where we really see, you know, what we would later call kind of the Afrofuturist themes and kind of nature of, of Ra's music and his cultural production start to really become uh, sort of fully developed. You know, I, I, in, in this chapter, I'm, I, I'm trying to also, though, trace that this doesn't, that these, the, the elements of this Afrofuturism, um, they come partly from, you know, Ra's extraordinary uh, musical genius, but they also um, are put together from a lot of the sort of workaday Southside musical culture. Uh, one of the things I explore is is the importance of Latin music in the orchestra sound of the mid '50s and late '50s, uh, and that doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, this was a moment when the Black South Side was totally taken with, um, you know, sort of mambo and other kind of commercialized forms of, of Latin music. Um, and it's in part, I think we see this in raw sensibility and we see it in other musicians of the period. And I think also we see it in ordinary people. Part of what makes this music so appealing um, to an African-American audience in 1950s Chicago is that this music, this quote unquote Latin music, um, it, it evokes a sound that's associated with Africa. And that this is a moment when, um, it's a decade really, when, um, when the Black South Side in particular is really transforming its understanding of Africa, uh, not as a place that needed to be kind of disavowed, a place that, you know, is a, seen as a kind of a primitive continent that, um, that one, uh, that any association with might, might prove shameful but instead a recognition of Africa as a place of origin that one can draw strength from. 
And this is in part because of the way in which sort of Africa itself is changing, uh, you know, the emerging kind of anti-colonial movements and ind national independence movements uh, of this period. And so, um, you know, it's also, it's also a moment when there are African musical performers who are coming to the South Side and introducing audiences to kind of new, uh, new musical sounds, uh, some of which, you know, we might call kind of anticipations of world music. So things are very dynamic musically, and they're very dynamic in terms of the sort of cultural rehabilitation, if you will, of, of the image of Africa in, uh, in Southside popular culture. And we see this as well with the, with the space race, where kind of um, there's a kind of appropriation of, um, if you will, space race cultural norms and sort of fashions by uh, everyday Southside culture. So, you know, uh, fashion styles and uh, clubs and other kinds of sort of, uh, you know, ordinary celebrations, if you will, of the modernity of space travel and a figuring of black people as participants in that modern notion of space travel. And so, you know, it effectively kind of, um, you know, it supplies, if you will, an important component of this emerging Afrofuturism in which the assertion is that, that, that black people in America are uh, not only a people with a rehabilitated past, but a people with a modern and dynamic and, and even potentially utopian future ahead of themselves. So you next talk about how the orchestra's residency, if I can call it that, at the Wonder Inn represents a significant period for Ra's music and philosophy. So what can you tell us about this time and this particular spot? The Wonder Inn was a pretty nondescript uh, music club located in the Black South Side in Chicago uh, for a handful of years at the end of the 1950s into the early 1960s. It's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a storied place now because, um, as you say, uh, the orchestra enjoyed a sort of um, extended engagement there where um, their performances attracted huge uh, interest on the part of uh, particularly Southside musicians who were themselves kind of exploring some of these musical changes that were happening in the community and in the larger kind of musical universe, and who were also drawn by the kind of, if you will, the cultural phenomenon that uh, Sun Ra and the orchestra were becoming, at least kind of at a local level in the South Side. We know a little bit about the music that they performed there. Um, during the sort of residency in 1960-1961 because uh, Ra himself was kind of an inveterate self-recorder and there are some um, sort of homemade recordings um, that are really fun to listen to and give you, I think, a pretty good sense of at least some of the music that the orchestra was playing and playing with um, in these these performances. Um, The performance style of the group is really kind of relaxed but very polished. Um, and what they're playing essentially, and, and this is a very characteristic of Sun Ra and the orchestra, they're playing a real mix of um, what we might call kind of experimental fair or experimental music, 
um, space songs, uh, things like space aura, uh, rock composition called angels and demons at play. Um, but also, uh, in these same sort of sets, they're also mixing in, um, standards, uh, Gershwin tunes, uh, songs like it's wonderful. And it ain't necessarily so from, from Porgy and Bess. Um, what's, I think, you know, what this mix of repertoire suggests, and it's all very artfully constructed uh, in terms of the sort of set list and, and how the music is presented. And it's all mixed with kind of Ra reading a little bit of his poetry. And there's some sort of uh, collective band unison space chant. Um, what we hear kind of in, in all of this is Ra's effort to use his musical and kind of performance resources to convey um, this kind of Africanized outer space vision that is, um, you know, is this, that is now coming together. And uh, there's this wonderful moment in this, uh, in this, uh, what's, what sounds like just kind of a night like every other night uh, when uh, part of this set is recorded. Um, but there's this great, after Ra reads a couple lines of poetry, uh, followed by a sort of space chant, uh, or by a by kind of vocal chant by the group. Um, there's these lines, if we come from nowhere here, why can't we be there? And for a reader of the polemical broadsheets, it's a very kind of resonant moment where one realizes that, um, you know, what, what Ra's saying there is sardonically, oh, so we're accused of having no history. We come from nowhere here on earth. Okay, we'll grant that for the time being. Then why is it so unrealistic that we might come from somewhere else, from outer space, from a world of our own? And so I, I think that kind of, um, and it's done in this sort of collective joke uh, of a presentation, but it's also serious in that it's, um, it's really a, a very succinct, kind of quite pithy, uh, advancing of, of, of Sunra's vision in a very economically, you know, way in a fun performative kind of context. And, you know, I think it, it, it deepens the resonance of that moment to know that, um, a lot of the audience was comprised of musicians who themselves would become really important over the coming generations. Uh, you know, folks like, uh, jazz drummer, Jack DeJanette. And Joseph Jarman, who ended up becoming uh, a founder of the Art Ensemble Chicago. Uh, Herbie Hancock played there. Uh, there are a number of other musicians, uh, some of whom sort of sat in with Sun Ra and the orchestra during their daytime rehearsals at the club. Some of them were just in the audience to kind of soak it in and, and see, uh, you know, to see what it was like. You know, one of the things I try to explore in this chapter, this this wonder in chapter, is also um, the deepening difficulty of finding places to perform and finding places to rehearse that was experienced by Sun Ra and the orchestra by 1960, 1961. You know, the, the Southside um, economy was increasingly sort of in free fall and uh, the difficulties of finding viable commercial spaces uh, was becoming more and more acute. And one of the consequences is that in addition to sort of the wonder in, Sun Ra and the orchestra are really, if you will, uh, sort of 
people are stumbling on them playing everywhere. So, uh, you know, uh, trumpeter Bill Fielder tells a story of his parents uh, buying a, a large house in, uh, in Englewood, a community that's sort of very close by uh, the south side, the, the black south side. And um, he sets up a Friday night jam session uh, there. And, and then all of a sudden, here comes Sun Ra with his entire orchestra, you know, 10, 12, maybe 15 pieces. And they all set up in his parents' living room and they're doing the rehearsal thing and he can't get rid of them. And there's another great story too of, of, of uh, the musician Henry Threadgill, uh, who has since become uh, kind of a musical legend in his own right. Uh, he describes how as a young teenager, uh, he is sneaking into the back of a, uh, a meat market in the South Side, uh, where Sun Ra and the group have kind of set up to do their rehearsals. And, uh, you know, he describes very evocatively what it's like to kind of sit at the feet of these musicians, uh, listening to this, what was still the time to him, incomprehensible music, uh, surrounded by, you know, sort of wild game and other uh, assorted uh, strange meats. Anyway, the point is, the group is partly out of necessity, finding itself playing in all sorts of strange places. Um, but at the same time, and I, I try to explore this a little bit in the chapter, in the, they, they are in doing so, uh, musically transforming those places as well. And there's, a, there's an element to Sunra's musicianship and to the, um, to the performance style of the orchestra, which then they carry forward through the rest of their, uh, their careers, which is the, sort of this lesson of the capacity of music to change places, the capacity of music to transform space. And, and what I see here is kind of another way in which space is played with by Sun Ra, not just outer space, but spaces in the city, which become uh, his spaces by virtue of him taking them and making them his, his own musically. So as you mentioned in your book, Sun Ra is actually better known today, over 100 years after his birth, than he was in his own lifetime. So why do you suppose that is? And looking back at his life and his works, what do you think are the most significant things we can take away from them? What can we learn from them? I mean, part of his, if you will, lack of renown, uh, particularly during the Chicago years, is simply um, the sort of threadbare nature of their operation and the sort of very restrictive kind of local scope of their market, if you will. Right? This was a group that through the 1950s, the period that I focus most on in the book, um, they, the Sunra and the orchestra were a local band. They were a community group. And so um, they, unlike many other musicians of the period in Chicago, they did not leave Chicago to go to New York. They did not record with major record labels. They did not get you know, exposure to a larger market or distribution. Uh, you know, a lot of their distribution was kind of hand to mouth, hand to hand, you know, bringing the records to the bandstand sort of thing. And so that is not a recipe for kind of broader, uh, you know, broader fame. Um, they did become uh, much better known once they left Chicago in 1961 and relocated in New York. Um, they happened to sort of arrive in New York at another kind of propitious moment when the sort of avant-garde jazz scene of New York was, ex was beginning to explode. Uh, 
they found a kind of residency home, if you will, uh, at a club there in New York. And that club became a, sort of another story club that attracted musicians, but also jazz writers and others who really publicized um, and made much better known uh, Sun Ra and the orchestra. So, you know, at the, by the end of the 1960s, the group had become kind of much better known. They also traveled uh, in Europe uh, in this period and became sort of, uh, you know, they very much excited European audiences and they became kind of a, a low level um, global phenomenon, but largely among kind of jazz circles and, and less so kind of in the, in the broader, uh, you know, cultural landscape. Um, I think that um, the, the Afrofuturist elements in Sun Ra's music, in his sort of philosophy or cosmology, um, you know, very much anticipate a lot of the sort of recent developments in, in black culture. And so I think that there has been, you know, sort of a looking back to and some recuperation of how important Sun Ra is. Um, we see this partly by musicians. So we see musicians in all different styles, sampling Sun Ra's work, uh, pointing to him as an important sort of forebear or pioneer, um, attempting to kind of think through and embrace the combination of utopian aspiration, black origin, uh, humor, and that sort of total kind of cultural sensibility that we see um, in Sun Ra. And, and, and I think it's become sort of popular and attractive in, in a range of different settings. I think also, you know, it, it's, it's, it's undeniable that there is a really joyful quality to Sun Ra's music that I think is just simply appealing. So even, for example, folks who uh, don't necessarily think of themselves as jazz fans, certainly don't think of themselves as experimental or free jazz fans, nevertheless, um, I think can really enjoy the music of the orchestra because of its sort of celebratory, joyful sort of uh, qualities. Um, I, so I, I think that, you know, that remains powerful and it, mean, it remains um, attractive. You know, I think there's also um, been a very significant interest more broadly um, among African Americans uh, on issues of cultural autonomy, the ways in which um, Black people can, if you will, seize upon defining who they are, independent of the white world, um, to, if you will, um, you know, lay hold of their, their own origin story and their own identity formation and their own self-definition of, of their aspirations. And so I think Sun Ra is seen as, as kind of ahead of his time uh, in, in, in that sort of work, that important work. You know, what I try to emphasize is that in my view, um, there are multiple Afrofuturist cultural traditions uh, and progenitors, if you will, uh, beyond Sun Ra. Uh, it doesn't all begin with Sun Ra. In fact, I try to take great pains in telling Sun Ra's story to show the ways in which he himself is drawing on uh, a long set of traditions 
uh, earlier writers and thinkers, you know, everyone from Martin Delaney in the mid 19th century, who was an abolitionist activist and thinker, to um, Robert Athley, Audre, uh, his name was Robert Athley Rogers, wrote a book called The Holy Pibby in the 1920s uh, that anticipates a lot of the sort of African outer space themes that we see uh, in Sun Ra later. So Afrofuturism, if we want to call it that, has been a important theme or a sort of sub-theme of, um, of Black culture for centuries. And uh, it is, uh, I think, newly valued today uh, in a way, and, and, and seen as a kind of source of cultural richness that uh, contemporary performers, writers, musicians can uh, can draw on and that it it it's sort of it it it's linked to uh an endless uh if you will uh rumination on um what might be the seeds of emancipation what might be the seeds of genuine transformed freedom for black people in the world today so do you think that Ra's music has a legacy that can be traced in the music of today yeah, it, it, I think there's no question about it. Um, you know, I, I think that the fact that he's being sampled by musicians, uh, but even we see this all through the really the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, over the last half century or so, we see a, a range of different musicians who became important in their own right, who either explicitly or implicitly uh, acknowledge um, Ra's influence. We see this in funk with, with George Clinton and uh, you know, the Parliament Funkadelic groups, uh, which has its own kind of outer space story to tell and its own urban story to tell as well. It was George Clinton that uh, had the song uh, that did very well called Chocolate Cities. Uh, there's a, a, a close kind of urban slash outer space connection in Clinton's music as well. Um, but we see this in other places too. We see it in rap and hip hop. Uh, we see it in, um, in more recent performers like uh, Janelle Monet. Uh, we see it really, uh, I think, across the, you know, across the cultural landscape in different kinds of, uh, different kinds of musical practice. We see it in jazz uh, throughout uh, really a lot of uh, contemporary Chicago jazz musicians as uh, Angel Bat Dawid. We see it in, in Damon Locks, the um, hip hop slash jazz uh, slash kind of knowledge rap uh, performer. Um, so I, I think that it's it's really, um, it's, uh, you know, Sunrise Influence is ubiquitous today. Um, and I think it, you know, it, it will continue uh, to be, uh, you know, an important kind of presence in, uh, in uh, you know, in, 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 in culture. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Well, William, I've taken up a lot of your time today, so thank you so much. But in the last few minutes that we have left, uh, can you tell us what you're currently working on? I'm currently interested in um, connecting uh, some of the themes that I've explored in the Sun Ra book to some of the themes that I explored in my first book, uh, Remaking New York, which... Um, in some ways, it's going to involve looking at the ways in which uh, race and racialization, notions such as racial capitalism, might help us better understand uh, development and community conflicts in 
contemporary cities like Chicago. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks again. It's been so lovely to listen to you today and hear more about Sun Ra, especially from this really different perspective. I really enjoyed your book. I was really glad you were willing to join me today. So thanks again. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor William Seitz about his new book, Sunrise Chicago, Afrofuturism and the City, published by University of Chicago Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Are you a fan of Sun Ra's music? I'd love to hear about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.